Welcome to the GW Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, leadership, and a lot more here. And we do the show from the Foggy Bottom Campus in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the Business of Sports program at GW. My producer is Henry Levy. On this episode of the podcast, the guest is Oliver Luck. Oliver is commissioner and CEO of the XFL, the nascent professional football league that begins play in 2020 with franchises in eight cities, including Washington, D.C. It's a single entity league in that all franchises are owned by one corporate parent, that being Vince McMahon's Alpha Entertainment. McMahon is also the founder of WWE, the professional wrestling and entertainment giant. Oliver Luck has had an interesting career journey, to say the least. Prior to joining the XFL, he was an executive at the NCAA, president and general manager of a franchise in Major League Soccer, and athletic director at West Virginia University. His son, Andrew, is the star quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts of the National Football League. We talked about all that and a lot more. The co-host this time is Justin Huang, an undergraduate student in the School of Business. Oliver, thank you very much for coming to GW. We're thrilled to have you here. Let's begin by talking a little bit about your career. Um, You have done many, many different things um, in sports. Tell us about the extent to which there was a plan. <laughs> and and um, it would be very interesting to hear more about that, whether uh, the extent to which you had thought out where your career might lead. I would be hard-pressed to say that I've had a plan right, for my career in the sense that I think it's very difficult, certainly in this age and maybe even you know in my generation. I'm a baby boomer. I'm at the tail end of the baby boomers. I think, you know, the corporate world had changed significantly mm-hmm. at that point, sort of, you know, as I got into the workforce, I graduated college in 1982. And, you know, that sort of traditional, you can work somewhere for 30 or 40 years or have two jobs, 20 years apiece and have a nice pension, you know, defined benefit plan as opposed to a defined... I think all of that was beginning to change. Um, and... As such, I knew I enjoyed sports. I knew that sports was always going to be around because it's just one of those institutions that um, that people of all, I think, you know, stripes enjoy. All cultures seem to enjoy some level of sport, you know, and entertainment. And I got into the sports business at a time where it was fundamentally changing. I can remember my first job in the sports business was. <clears throat> running an NFL Europe franchise, then then called the World League of American Football, and I went to New York uh, to the NFL office for maybe a day, and then jumped on a plane to fly to Frankfurt, Germany, and I remember getting a little packet of information, and you could put all the NFL employees on a one-page, you know, little phone form, you know what I mean? There may have been no more than, I don't know, 40, 50 people working for the National Football League, in 1990, 
And you look at it today, and it's exploded, right? The franchises have exploded, the number of people, the business. Nobody was running stadiums back then. It was all the municipalities. That changed when the, you know, the teams you know, began to take on the responsibilities of a leaseholder right, for, for a building. Nobody was running television networks, and social media didn't exist. So you know, I was also entering the sports business at a time when it was going through massive, um, what's the right word, expansion. Right, of opportunities, uh, sports was going global. I was flying off to Frankfurt, Germany, to you know sell football to skeptical Germans, and you know the NBA was was involved uh, you know with their overseas ventures. So I, you know I entered a time when I think the, the the sports world was expanding pretty rapidly, and I think I sort of realized that there'd be a whole bunch of opportunities that came along, but who knows <laughs> you know what they would lead to or where the next step is. I did though always think of uh, something my father-in-law told me uh, when I asked his daughter to get married. And we're happily married 30 years, four children. And he told me, you know, he, gave me he gave me his version of the 80-20 rule, which is when you take a new job, spend 80% of the time on, the, on that job and 20% of the time looking for the next job. <laughs> right? And you really, I found that to be good advice. <laughs> like many things my father-in-law told me. Doesn't mean that you're slacking on your current job, but uh, you know you always have to be sort of looking around to see what's next coming out of the position you're in, because sometimes you're not quite sure where that will will lead you. So I guess to summarize, I would say that I don't really think I ever had a specific plan. I never set a goal to be an athletic director at a major university or to you know be a commissioner of a startup football league. Uh, I think you know uh, I, I wanted to take opportunities as they came along. And I guess what sort of drove me with all these sort of different jobs I've had is that if you ever reach a point, and I firmly believe, if you ever reach a point where it becomes routine and boring and dull, then it's time to move on. Because I think you do a, a lousy job when it's routine and boring and dull of whatever you're at. So I think uh, you know some people like to stay places for 15, 20 years. I'm more of a five-year guy. Okay, Justin. Okay. So as you know, the uh, the Azuli, the Alliance of American Football AF just made its debut earlier this month. So personally, I think the ideas of AF and XFL is kind of similar to each other. So how are you gonna um, distinguish XFL from AF, and what's your um, uh, what's going to make XFL unique in the future? Sure. So I think there's a a, a couple of things, and I, and I don't know that much about the AAF. I'm not privy mm-hmm. to you know their sort of strategy or what what they want to accomplish. But we want to have an up tempo game, have a you know, good quality of football. We want to have fewer stoppages, fewer breaks. That's one of the things that people complain about. Even though the game is extraordinarily popular right now, the game of football at the professional and at the college level. There are things that people complain about, and we wanted to address those functions, right? Mm-hmm. And one of those is you know, the number of stoppages and the idle time, the dead time. So fewer stoppages, fewer breaks, more rhythm and flow, which is something that players and coaches and fans, I think, will enjoy. Um, I think that when we announce in the next couple of weeks our broadcast agreements, they'll be significantly more powerful and more um, beneficial to us than, uh, than what, what the AAF uh, is involved with. Um, I do know that the AAF has you know, eliminated the kickoff. I don't like that idea. <laughs> as, we, we're, as we like to say, we want to keep the foot in football, and 
we recognize that the kickoff is a dangerous play in terms of head trauma, uh, but we think that instead of just eliminating it, let's see if we can't look at it and modify it, make it safer, but keep, not the kickoff, nobody really cares about the kickoff, they care about the kickoff return. That's the fun part of the game, the, the fun part of that particular play. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, it's hard for me to speak to all the things that will be different from the AF because I haven't really, to be honest, spent much time, you know, thinking about the AF or watching. I've watched a little bit of some of their games. Um, I think they're positioning themselves as a developmental league for the NFL, mm -hmm. and uh, we do not want to be considered a developmental league. We would like to build a sustainable, standalone league that's not somehow, you know, only there, the only purpose, the raison d'etre is not to, you know, to, be, to develop players for another league. We think that players can find a home in our league and play for two or three or four or five years and not necessarily have the ambition to, to go to the NFL or go back to the NFL. In, in, in what ways will the XFL be a competitor to the NFL? In what ways do you think? In no, no way at all. Why, why do you say that? Well, uh, you know, I think the NFL is an extraordinarily successful league. I think uh, I'm a huge fan of the NFL, and I think they're they're uh, they they have you know a, a juggernaut. They've been around next year for a hundred years, or so celebrating their centenary. They're you know richly woven into the fabric of American life. Even for those folks who don't necessarily follow football and watch a lot of football, it's a very important part of 32 communities. Um, they play in the fall, we play in the spring. Uh, I think the fans that come out to really enjoy the XFL will be very often fans who are season ticket holders of the Dallas Cowboys or of uh, you know schools in that area, you know TCU, SMU, University of Texas, Baylor, you know uh, Texas A&M, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. I think folks who are diehard football fans who want to watch more football. And our research indicates that there are about 40 million. Americans who self-identify as die-hard, passionate football fans, and we think those folks will want to watch more football. That uh, you know the the way the season has historically been structured. You know, January got playoff games, February got one game, the Super Bowl, and then boom, you're you're done until you know late August, early September. We think there's an opportunity to build a business on those 40 million plus fans who really are passionate about the game and miss the game. And they don't transfer, and I'm, I'm like this myself, they don't necessarily transfer their viewing habits to college basketball or to the NBA or to, you know, MLB when it, when it kicks off in April, right? They're, they like football. <laughs> Just like folks that, you know, listen to Beethoven probably prefer to listen to Beethoven and don't listen to, you know, rock and roll. You know, if Beethoven is shut off, <laughs> you know, for six months. So um, we think in that sense that, we're literally not competing in any sort of form or fashion with the NFL. We hope to be, you know, a complementary league. What about players? Uh, we think that there's a, a small category of players uh, in the National Football League that uh, would be receptive to the XFL. And those, take quarterbacks, for example, those are players, quarterbacks, who have used up their practice squad eligibility you can only play, I think, two, two or three years, I can't remember now, on, on practice squad, on NFL practice squad, and probably won't make the 53-man roster because on the 53-man roster, typically it's two quarterbacks. It's your starter, it's your backup. So there's a whole bunch of guys that 
um, we believe would be receptive to our argument, right? And practice squad, we can compete with those salaries. Quite honestly, they, they get paid I think eight thousand bucks a, a, a game, and that's it. So um, we think that there's an opportunity you know, for a relatively modest uh, number of, of players to, to play in our league. And the argument I think is not just hey, you can make as much money. XFL as you can in the NFL. The argument is also you'll actually play, right? Quarterbacks and others, but particularly quarterbacks, have to play. You're not getting any better when you're running the scout team. You're not getting any better when you're a backup and you're, you're running plays off of cards on a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So that's the other argument, I think, for a lot of these guys. And I, I can say with you know, full honesty that, you know, as I ran NFL Europe, I saw Kurt Warner come over and play 10 games for the Amsterdam Admirals, and he resurrected his career, went on to the Super Bowl and became a Hall of Famer. I believe Kurt Warner would not be in the Hall of Fame had he not spent 10 games playing for the Amsterdam Admirals. I saw Brad Johnson win a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Brad Johnson resurrected his career because he played 10 games with the London Monarchs. 10 games, and bullets were flying, and you know he had Phil. And people could watch and say, hey, that guy's not bad. He might be worth inviting to camp. And then he goes to camp and, and ends up with the starting, you know, starting position. I saw John Kitna do the same thing, Jake Delong. Right? These are just quarterbacks, you know, others as well. Uh, so, you know, you don't, get any, you, don't, you don't get any better if you don't play with the orchestra, right? It's hard to practice football by yourself. <laughs> so there's, a, you know, a, 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 I think a fairly compelling argument that, that uh, certain players would truly benefit, you know, by coming to the XFL playing 10 games or maybe 20 games in those two seasons. And I think they could then, they have a better chance of staying in the NFL by doing that. And it's a little bit, you know, counterintuitive. You have a better chance of staying by leaving. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, that very well, I think, could be the case for, for a handful of players. Okay, so uh, you mentioned that XFL is trying to uh, reduce the stop time in the game, mm -hmm. uh, therefore making the football game faster. Right. So um, I read an article actually saying XFL is trying to do that because um, the league is trying to um, attract more younger generation audience um, because the uh, younger generations are not used to focusing on focusing its attention on one topic for so long. So I'm We're catering to all millennials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm just wondering, <laughs> I'm just wondering like, um, will uh, XFL be mainly targeting the younger generation or what's your overall Targeting strategy, general-wise. Yeah, so I mean, I'll I'll go back to what I had said earlier. You know, there's about 85, based on our research, about 85 million football fans in, in the U.S. About 40 million of those say, "Yes, I live for football. It's my Saturday, Sunday activity. I'm a diehard." Right. So, we're targeting those 40 million diehard football fans. There'll there'll be a bunch of millennials in that group. You know, um, and and we hope that the game as we envision it, as we you know, have reimagined it, which is going to be a more up tempo. You know, more fewer stoppages, a, a shorter play clock, right? More action, right? More action in the time that you're sitting there watching the game, either you know, in the stands or at home. We think that'll appeal to millennials. It's not necessarily a specific millennial uh, pitch, though, if you know what I'm saying. Right. I mean, listen, all the games, you know, baseball perhaps being the most obvious, all the games are trying to pick up the pace. You know, the, the baseball folks are, you know, playing around with this idea of the pitch clock, right? And that makes some sense, you know. Uh, I think college and, and pro basketball, if you think about it, it was, you know, sort of way ahead of its time when they put the shot clock in, you know, and now it's accepted, you know, and we all love it, and it's a major part of the game. But I'm old enough to think about the days when they didn't have the shot clock, and you'd watch, you know, 
the Princeton Tigers and under Pete Carroll play uh, whatever, 38 to 30 game. It was actually kind of interesting, you know, but they passed the ball around, you know, in some cases for four or five minutes before taking a shot. It was awesome. But um, everybody, I think, is in that same boat because attention spans seemingly are a little bit shorter. <laughs> you know, and that's not just with millennials. I think that's with, with, I find myself, you know, wanting to, I go to a lot of football games, as you can imagine, and I'm like, gosh, it's like another three-minute delay. It's just They just ran two plays, and there's another three-minute delay. But, you know, in a sense, you have to give the NFL enormous credit, and college football as well. They're a victim of their own success, because those three-minute delays are full of, you know, paid advertisements. <laughs> and and you got to admire that, because it's an incredible business model, you know, to the benefit of, you know, owners, players, you name it, all sorts of folks. So it, it's, uh, you know, it's... It, it, that, that's sort of the interesting dynamic. We're, we're lucky in the sense that we're starting off and we can sort of design our game um, without having to you know, be overly worried about you know, the number of commercial breaks, et cetera. So currently, SFI is planning to have uh, eight teams, right? Yes. In eight different cities, yes. so including D.C. Yep. So uh, what were the factors what, that you were considering while choosing the host city for mm -hmm. your team? Because I... I believe all, this, all the teams are essentially owned by the league, right? Correct. Different from the yeah, NFL. Yeah, correct. So we sent out RFPs, requests for proposals, uh, back in spring of, of last year. And we had about 40 cities that responded. Uh, very often it was like a sports commission. In some cases it was just the you know, whatever entity controlled the stadium. But had about 40 responses. We kind of narrowed that down to probably about 15 or 16 fairly serious ones. So what were the factors? One factor was going back to these 40 million football fans, right? We, we were trying to appeal to them. You know, where do they live? They live in NFL markets, typically. And guess what? They're season ticket holders for the Jets and the Giants or the Redskins or whatever. So uh, that was part of it, right? Uh, the second thing was stadium and stadium availability. You know, uh, that matters. Third thing, quite honestly, was weather. You know, we're, we're a spring league. We're going to launch right after the Super Bowl. Uh, so, you know, as attractive as Chicago is as a football market, you know, it's dicey to try to play football outdoors in February in Soldier Field or any other venue in Chicago, right? So we had to consider uh, weather with all of that. And, and we also wanted to, you know, be somewhat geographically representative of the country. So, you know, we've got two West Coast teams, Seattle and L.A. We've got uh, two teams in Texas. You know, I think everybody recognizes the Texans love football. They can't seem to get enough of it, and you know it's a low-cost state to operate in, which is kind of uh, important as well. We've got two sort of you know midwestern teams, if you like. One midwestern team was St. Louis, and then I would call Tampa in the Midwest, but you know we're kind of. And then we've got DC and New York on the East Coast. So um, those are all pretty good-sized markets: New York, LA, obviously. I think the two biggest, Dallas and Houston, are in the top six or seven. Seattle, like, is like maybe 14th. So that's important as well. I mean, broadcasters like to see, you know, big markets as opposed to smaller markets typically. So I'll, I'll ask the last question, Oliver. Um, you have a son who I believe is in the sports industry um, as well. He's mm -hmm. your son, Andrew, is a quarterback with the Indianapolis Colts. Has he offered you any professional advice? Um, that, that has been particularly valuable, or, or vice versa. Tell us about um, the conversations you have about your respective careers. 
Oh, you know, I, I, I ask him uh, a number of questions about a number of things related to football. I mean, obviously, we talk about lots of other things outside of football, but when we are uh, talking football, I'll ask his advice on a number of things. Obviously, as a, was he, this was year seven for him in the NFL, so he's been around the block. You know, played college football, of course, so knows a lot of people, players, coaches, has crossed paths you know, with a lot of uh, people, and you know, I certainly respect his judgment on certain issues. I'll, I won't give you any specifics, I'll keep those private between father and son, but um, he, uh, as you'd expect, right, you know, he's uh, sort of one of my unofficial advisors <laughs> on this venture. I mean, he knows, about, he knows as much about football as anybody, right, given what, what he's done. So um, he uh, has been very helpful and forthright. And you must be very proud of him. Yes, absolutely. As I are of all the kids. Of course. Kids, so we like to think he's first among equals. <laughs> Primus and Tupares, as the Romans would say. It's great of you to spend this time with us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to be here at beautiful George Washington University.